Okay, before we take a look now at the letters of these digital epistles, I just want to pause in this session and talk about what I'm going to call the most dangerous person in Christianity. And it really is going to give us the opportunity to talk a little bit about theology, how we process it, how we look at it, and the kind of people that we can be, I think, to have more effective conversations about these things with people than we often do. The best question I got from yesterday's talking together, and I hope this isn't uh, offensive to any of you, but the best question I had came from someone who wasn't even here last night, doesn't even know what we've been talking about. But I got this email this morning in my email box, and I think you'll see how much it expresses some of what we talked about today. And I thought, you know, some of you might even have the same question. So even though it's not relative to what we talked about, I think it'd be worth looking at. He was talking about a book, and I'm not going to give the book because I don't know if he accurately represents what the book says, but he's studying this book with a group of people, and uh, they're having discussions about it. And he says, Here's what the book says. We can't look at God as only a loving father or we can't appreciate the cross. And he cites passages in the Psalms about he not only hates sin, he hates sinners. And Habakkuk 1.13 to prove God can't look at evil. And he says, and here's going back to this gentleman again. He says, I feel compelled to share with others how harmful this view of the father is. But I'm realizing I will have to point out that the Old Testament writers got some things wrong as about or got some things wrong as a result of their fallen pre-redemption condition. How do I lovingly share this? I'm anticipating people really struggling to process that through their ideas about biblical inerrancy. It's a great question, isn't it? And I I don't know how to answer it to him, but I'll answer in the context of what we're talking about here. I understand the argument. The The argument is, unless God is this angry, offended deity that Jesus satisfies on the cross, then we're somehow... Dis- dismissing who the Father is. And he can quote a couple of scriptures. Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's scriptures in the Old Testament about God being angry. There's things about sin. There's, I looked up Habakkuk 1.13, it's just about God not liking evil. It doesn't say he can't look at it, like he doesn't see it, like he's invisible to it. It's, that's not what it's saying about him. But what this misses, it's not really an argument over proof text. That's where I don't want to end up. I, don't, I wouldn't either say the Father is only loving. Because I've also said to you that the Father is also light and truth. So to say that is to dismiss, I think, what a lot of us believe who argue for the fact that God does want us now to know Him as an Abba. That's how He wants us to know Him. In being our Abba, He's going to guide us into truth and to the reality of the way He wants us to live. And It's not just He's our Abba, so we can just do whatever we want. No one cares. And we'll talk about that in some of the other letters where the apostles address that specifically. But conflicting, but confronting this, and first of all, I just would underline his word, I feel compelled to. When you feel compelled to, don't do whatever you feel compelled to. Compelled usually has something to do with our flesh. I want to warn these people. I want to fix what's wrong with them. If you feel compelled to some kind of activity, what I'm discovering about the way God leads us is that leading is rarely compulsive. It's rarely compelling. It's an invitation And if I feel compelled to fix an error in people, we're probably not going to have a great conversation. So I'd first of all tell him, don't feel compelled. You're in a study. If people love that study, you might freely share that you see it a bit differently if if the group allows for that. But in terms of I've got to show them how wrong this book is, man, that's just a wrong road to go down. But it's not wrong because he can't quote some proof text. What's wrong with his statements, if these are true from the book, that you have to really appreciate this angry, offended deity before the cross makes any sense at all, which I don't think is true. In fact, I think it doesn't make much sense at the cross if we start with God there. 
And, but I'll show you why the Old Testament people thought that was true. They did see a terrifying deity. They were scared of that God. They did think he hated them and hated their sin. And, and we'll get to some of that conversation. But in the midst of that, there's this thing about what, what you miss here is the incarnation. Jesus doesn't demonstrate any of that. And what people miss, if God's this angry, offended deity, why is Jesus evidencing none of that? Because we ultimately don't believe that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. We believe Jesus was God, God's good side. He's going to come down here and be nice to us. But the real God is really angry. So we need this advocate. We grab the language from 1 John chapter 2. We need Jesus to stand between us and an angry father. And that's how we've postulated it so that we're really grateful for the cross because God was just so offended at our sin that unless unless he could kill Jesus, he couldn't find a way to tolerate us. And yet Jesus comes into a world. He grows up in a family of sinners. He sits at table with sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. If there's all this anger and offense in God for our sin, Jesus doesn't demonstrate it. What he does demonstrate is great compassion for the destruction sin works in the people that he loves. He does demonstrate that. He doesn't even demonstrate that God has great enemies. That's one of those other great things from the Old Testament. There's some people God loves and cares about and works for. There's people that God hates and he can't wait to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yet when Jesus comes, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, give him the other also. Jesus t- is Jesus telling us to be better than God? Which would be really a dumb construct, wouldn't it? And so you don't overturn doctrines like that by, well, let's find proof text that God's an Abba, and we'll confront that with Hebrews or Habakkuk 1.13, and we're going to have a big fight over proof text. You just say, you know what? What I think you miss is the incarnation. The God we see in Jesus isn't the one you're describing to me at all. He comes among evil people. He comes into a broken and evil world. He hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. He can stand in Caiaphas' presence who's ready to murder him. And he can be loving and kind and sentient in that conversation with Caiaphas. In fact, what Luke said, I think is one of the most incredible passages of all of Scripture, and one I've missed most of my life, even though I've read Luke hundreds of times, is when he's talking about turn the other cheek to the person who offends you. If somebody asks for your cloak, give them your coat also. What he says to him is, for even God is kind and gracious to the wicked and the ungrateful. Now, I never saw that scripture before. I grew up, there's a home team God loves. There's the away team God hates. And you just want to make sure you're on the home team. You don't want to end up on the away team. So you're trying to find out, where's that line where I'm sure I'm on the home team? So God will like me. And then even then, when he doesn't answer most of my prayers, I've got to wonder, does he really like me? And maybe I'm not really on the home team. And maybe I need to try harder to fix something. And all the complications that religion brings, because we're not convinced of God's base nature. And if God's base nature is he's angry and offended at our sin until he can kill something, then that's the way we're going to see God. And that's going to set up, as we talked about yesterday, that whole Stockholm Syndrome. So how do we deal with this? I love this quote from Richard Rohr. He says, ignorance does not result from what we don't know. Ignorance results from what we think we know, but don't. Most ignorant people are, in fact, quite certain. The most dangerous person in the world is the person that doesn't know they're interpreting Scripture. They think they're just reading Scripture, and they just believe what Scripture says. The Schofield Bible, when it was published a number of years ago, uh, 150 years ago now, in Schofield's journal as he's preparing that, do you know what Schofield really wanted to sell in his Bible? 
He wanted to do these notes. He wanted to do a Bible. And what he wanted to sell, and I don't mean just the crass marketing of it, what he wanted people to get from his notes was, this scripture means this, it only means this, and that's all it means. And so what he wanted people to have is a sense of certainty. You could read this scripture with his interpretation, and then anyone who disagrees with your interpretation of that scripture obviously doesn't believe in the Bible and doesn't believe in God, and they're a pagan. And when you watch the doctrine police, people who fight for their point of view, even if it's ignorant, ignorant not because they don't know something, it's because they think they know something that isn't true. And I was one of those for 40-some-odd years. I know what that looks like, to be absolutely certain of things that I thought this is the only way to see it. If you believe the Bible, you believe this. And then went on a journey in the last 17 years and found out that a lot of things I thought the Bible clearly says was only what Wayne thought it said. And in fact, the Bible says something incredibly different. I don't think we can get to honest Bible interpretation without a sense of humility that says, like Peter here, Man, Paul writes some very difficult things, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scripture. He's talking about Paul's own writings. Paul's his contemporary. He's going, wow, Paul's out there on some stuff. I'm not sure I know what he's talking about. Other people who don't know what he's talking about think they do, though. And they're going to distort that to create tension and problems for other people. And Peter saw that, too. The false teachers in the body of Christ were not people just teaching occultism or Satanism or whatever. They were teaching legalism. And bondage. And they were teaching the old covenant again in new covenant clothing. That's what, exactly what was going on. And they were teaching that God wasn't the loving father Jesus said he was. And that people had to work hard to earn God's approval. And that's what Peter's confronting. It's what Paul's confronting. It's that view of the life of the church that says we, we're not, we don't really, we, we know it. This is the only thing it can be. There's a funny video I saw recently on TV by a, a man named uh, David Brooks. And he wrote a book called The Social Animal. One of the things he talks about is man's overconfidence in himself. He gives some statistics. This is interesting. He says that 95% of university professors report that they are above average teachers. Get that? 95% are in the top 50 percentile of professors. He says 96% of college students say they have above average social skills. 96% are above average. 19% of Americans think they're in the top 1% of wage earners. And he also says, this is a gender-linked trait, by the way, men drown at twice the rate of women because men think they can actually swim across the lake, that they can't. He talks about how we're overconfidence machines and that people who really learn and really grow, here's what he says to them, they have an ability and awareness of their own biases and their own overconfidence. They're open-minded in the face of ambiguity and they're able to adjust the strength of their conclusions to the strength of the evidence. We need that if we're going to really take an honest look at Scripture. I met a man recently who was telling me the book of Job, uh, tell me something about the book of Job that was true, and he quoted something Job said, and I said, yeah, but you know, God said later that Job was wrong. So you're quoting me something that Job's saying, and you're saying, well, it's in the Bible, so it's true, and I'm telling you, no, God said it wasn't. And he said, oh, then you don't believe the Bible then. And I said, no, I disagree with your interpretation of the Bible. And his answer was, I'm not interpreting. That's what the Bible says. And he's got his little proof text. But he doesn't measure it in the larger weight of what the whole book of Job is saying. And the fact that God says, Job, you're wrong. And Job at the end of it says, I'm wrong. I spoke where I didn't have understanding. And I challenged God with things that were untrue of him. That's the danger we all have. Even Paul's saying, we see through a glass darkly. 
And those who want to say, well, that which was perfect has come. This is that perfect thing. And if we take it literally, we have everything we need so that we don't know Jesus anymore. Those people scare me to death. Those are people that become the, the doctrine police in the playground that want to make sure everybody believes it the way they believe it. And you can often tell in that by how obnoxious they become when people disagree with them and disagree with what they're doing. It's not enough to say, well, you know, I disagree with you and maybe we could talk about this more. It's you're wrong. You don't believe the Bible. You got to stop it. And you know what? I think if we take a very humble approach, even the need to compel others of what you might learn this week or what you're learning in your journey and you're with other brothers and sisters who see God as a more scary critter and all of that, it might be better if we just took a, a more humble posture of just wanting to posit questions and open doors into people's understanding and not trying to ram down their throat the same things we do. There's a lot of mystery in this book. I love the Bible. There's a lot of truth in it. There's things I think Scripture is absolutely clear on that we can embrace. And there are other things in Scripture that aren't quite so clear. You can look at it and say, well, you know, it seems to say this on the one hand. And then, yeah, it kind of seems to say this on the other hand. And I'm not really sure. And there's a lot that I will say that about Scripture. There's things that go, boy, I don't know. There's some that are going to argue now reconciling all things to himself means that everybody gets saved in the end. But there's other scriptures that talk about the weeping and gnashing of teeth and that there are dire consequences. And anytime we're going to talk about this in our next session, anytime we exalt one truth of scripture, one thing scripture seems to say at the expense of other things scripture seems to say in the same arena, and we end up living in a pretty, a pretty bad place. And the problem is the more ignorant people are, the more confidence they have. I had a man describe spiritual maturity to me one time, and I sincerely hope he's right. He said, spiritual maturity is moving from confident arrogance to thoughtful uncertainty. And my goodness, I hope he's right. Because I was more certain of things 20 years ago when I was more wrong about things. Now I hold truth very loosely, not because I don't think there's a truth in the world. I think there is a truth I think God's right about everything. I'm just more appreciative of the fact that what I know and see about God today is a very small part of all that he is. And what I understand about the truth of Scripture is a small part of all that truth is. So I want to live in the light that I have. and I want to embrace that. But I also want to embrace the fact that there are ambiguities, that there are, there's a mystery in Scripture. There's things I don't fully understand. That's what Peter was able to do. And I love Peter's statement about that. I don't know. I don't, want to, I don't want to distort it. I don't want to use it to, to whack, whack people over the head. At the same time, there's truth here that God's inviting us to live in and we can grow in. And so realize all of us interpret Scripture. And be sure where Scripture is sure. Be uncertain where Scripture is ambiguous. And, and then you'll find it easier not only to grow and have the conversations that are going to help you have more understanding. You're also going to have more healthy conversations with people who may see it differently. Because you can sit down with anybody who sees things. What I found is this. As long as you don't have to convince them you're right, you can have a conversation with anybody about anything. But once you decide, no, I'm right and you're wrong, and I've got to win you, I've got to convince you I'm right, now you've become one of those dangerous people in the world. So he said the other night about parables and Jesus telling them, because I don't want to put force truth on someone who's not ready. I don't want to be the person who's driving it home. I, I think what... Eugene Peterson said, and there's been a big brouhaha recently over Rob Bell's new book about 
about love wins and whether he's an ultimate reconciliationist. And he really doesn't come out in the book as one. He really just talks about, man, what do these scriptures mean? And he asks a lot of provocative questions, questions I'd prefer not to waste time on. They're not important in my life these days, and it's getting a whole discussion I don't care about. Eugene Peterson, a friend of mine who wrote The Message and a number of other wonderful books, he had endorsed that book, and he got a, I mean, he, the doctrine police are just beating him up for, you know, being what he's not and making accusations that aren't true. And he recently made a statement, I don't have the quote, but he recently made the statement that the one thing I notice about this, he doesn't call them the doctrine police, that's my word, but those types of folks who have this narrow definition of truth, and if you don't fit it, they have the right to do anything they want to you. He said, this is Eugene Peterson, none of them bear the character of Christ. Wow, that's a provocative statement. None of them bear that character. I've noticed that when people challenge things that I do. There's people who have honest questions about things I say and write. I don't have any problem having that conversation. And there's other people who just make up stuff about me. They'll, they'll make up a history for me that isn't true, that isn't even based remotely on some fact from my life distorted. They just make it up as a means to discredit or say I'm great friends with people who they cast aspersions on. I don't even know them, never had a conversation with them. But there's nothing, and, and they end up, these, these people so certain of this literal interpretation of Scripture, many of them, that their character, and I think this is how I measure it oftentimes, is your character more like the Jesus who's loving people into his life? Or is your character in these things more like the Pharisees who had something to prove, and if they weren't happy, something to destroy? <laughs> 